Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. We are in John chapter 3. We're going to be going through verses... Uh, 1 through 21 this evening. And so let's read. Uh, We're going to break it up into a few different sections just as kind of an easy way to uh, have some natural breaks and uh, and get on with it. So we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. It says this, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the spirit. Human beings can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say that you must be born again. The wind blows whenever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Starting out in John 3, we are going to come to one of the most well-known verses, John 3, 16, in the entire Bible, right? That's probably one of the the most, like the biggest verse. If someone who doesn't even go to church, you probably know that. But uh, all the stuff that leads up to it and all the stuff that that, uh, goes after it is just as inspired and just as important. So we will get to John 3, 16 in here in just a minute, but let's talk about this interaction. Nicodemus, he is a Pharisee. If you have any kind of knowledge of the Bible, Pharisees aren't big fans of Jesus. Uh, not, not a big fan of him. And, and Nicodemus isn't just a run-of-the-mill Pharisee. It says that he is a, a leader. And um, more specifically, he is a member of the Sanhedrin. And when I talk about the Sanhedrin, does that ring a bell? Does anyone does that have any connotation when you think of, of the Sanhedrin when it comes to the New Testament's the Bible, any anything, they were Bernie. Some sort of Yeah, yeah. They uh, they were more like the court system, like the they adjudicated the law. Um, the Sanhedrin uh, were responsible for um, I want to say convicting because they didn't have the power to put people to death, but um, uh, 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 recommending that Jesus be crucified to the Roman Empire, to, to Herod. And so um, Nicodemus, I don't know if at the time of the crucifixion, um, was part of that group, but at some point he was part of the Sanhedrin. So he was a, a pretty well-established member of the Jewish community. And you've got Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And, and there's a lot of different meanings there. Um, some people say that this is the time where maybe they had a chance to really just talk um, one-on-one. Some people think that maybe it was because he didn't want to be found out because the Pharisees weren't fans of Jesus, and so he went to Jesus at night. It's not implied, but that would kind of fit the theme of John with, with the light that we talked about in week one, that there's the, the idea of light is a big idea in John's gospel. And so Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night, maybe that he's in spiritual darkness. And, and eventually, you read, you read about him a few more times, in the gospel. So you read about him in chapter 3, chapter 7, and, nine, and, and then chapter 19. And in chapter 7, 
the Pharisees are having this back and forth talking about Jesus. And you see it in John chapter 7, verses 47 through 51. They say, have you been led astray too, the Pharisees mocked. Is there a single one of us rulers or Pharisees who believe in him? And I imagine if you're Nicodemus, you're like, keep your poker face, keep your poker face, keep your poker face. It says the foolish crowds follow him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them, which is pretty uh, ironic when um, you see Jesus saying, woe to you Pharisees, uh, kind of showing who's God, God's curse is really on. It says, then Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, spoke up, is it legal to convict a man before he has given a hearing? And so in this instance, Nicodemus isn't really showing his hand, but he's trying to, to protect Jesus. You know, Jesus said, no one takes my life, I lay it down willingly. But he's trying to protect Jesus using these procedures and, and the law and, and trying to seem fair. But you start to maybe see this light bulb kind of go off like, whoa, let's not, let's not rush to, to convict this guy. And so you see him kind of, kind of stepping up, but not really because he's hiding behind the law. But then you see him in John 19 where he's willing to risk this reputation of this high-standing Pharisee um, after the death of Jesus. In uh, John 19, it says, Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who'd been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, which we could go into that, but uh, that's kind of an interesting, a secret disciple. I don't know if that's really how it works, but um, said, Ask Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. And with him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought 75 pounds a perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes following, Jesus, following the Jewish burial customs. They wrapped Jesus' body with spices in a long sheet of linen. So you see kind of him coming around to saying, hey, you know what? It's, it's not about being a secret follower anymore. Maybe he thought, maybe he thought this guy's dead. You know, what, what can the harm come of me now, right? The guy that I was leading. But you see him getting a little bit more bold with his um, meeting from meeting Jesus at night to being willing to... Um, to give 75 pounds of this ointment and, and taking Jesus' body and preparing it. So um, you've got this interaction with this, with this guy who is a religious leader, and he says, we know that you come from God because evidence of what you do shows that, that God's with you. And I'm like, who's he talking about? We, is he talking about the Pharisees? They know he's from God, or is it, they know God's with him. Is he talking about the Jewish people? But then Jesus kind of says something. He, he answers a question that no one really asks What's he say in verse 3? He says, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Kind of, come, kind of comes out of, of left field. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those conversations where someone just says something. It's like you're talking to a, to a five-year-old, and they're like, I like red. You're like, all right, buddy, cool, right? There's, it wasn't really that, didn't know that was in the, in the conversation. And Jesus is like, hey, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Um, this, this verse right here, it says, I tell you the truth. You read verse 3, verse 5, and 11. Um, they all have the same start. Now, my, the New Living Translation um, says, I tell you the truth, um, I assure you, and then I assure you. But all of those words are the same in the Greek, and they mean amen, which is really weird. How do we normally end our prayers? Amen. If, uh, if Justin and I are praying on a Sunday, and at the end of it, we say um, in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, right? And what that means, does anyone know what the word amen means? Yeah. Yeah, let it be. So be it. And so when it said corporately, we're basically in agreement with what was prayed. And so I'm praying, I'm closing. You guys are like, yeah, that was the best prayer I've ever heard in my life, right? 
Yeah. Uh, but you're like, that. yeah, I agree with what you said. When people pray over you and, and you agree with that, at the end of it, you'll say, um, amen. And it basically means, hey, what you said is mine. I, I agree. We're in agreement with what's going on here. When it's said at the beginning of a statement, like Jesus says, truly, truly, or verily, verily, or um, I tell you the truth, our ears should perk up because what it means at the beginning of a statement is like, hey, this is super true. This is really, really important. You need to listen to this. He says it three times in this conversation with Nicodemus, and it's verse 3, verse 5, and 11. And so as we read that, we should be like, ears perk up. Um, what's about to follow is something of, of incredible significance from the words of Jesus, and, and it's the word amen. Um, and so in this, in this instance, he says, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth, uh, no one is born again, or no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And it literally means born from above. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke use the term kingdom of God several times. John uses it twice in his gospel, and it's in this conversation right here. He says, you can't see the kingdom of God, and you can't enter the kingdom of God. And those are the two times he uses the phrase kingdom of God. And if you remember, back to John 1, verses 12 and 13, he talks about people being children of God. And so you kind of see this correlation of being born again and being a child of God. And so Nicodemus is really confused. He's like, how can I, a 37-year-old, you know, 210-pound guy be born again, right? Good luck with that. He's still trying to process it. And John, end of John 2, says that Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows. And so Jesus understands. He's probably like, yeah, he's, he's still not getting it. And so he, he kind of steps away for a second from the born again idea. And he says, unless you are born of water and of the spirits, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think he's trying to dumb it down a little bit for Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He knows the Old Testament. And so you would think he's like, okay, it's clicking a little bit more. Um, we'll, we'll read down here that he still doesn't get it. But Jesus says, unless you are born of water and of the Spirit. Spirit kind of makes sense, right? It's like we kind of understand that one. But what does he mean when he's talking about water? If we, if we look back at even the first couple of chapters of John, you see John the Baptist baptizing people. And it's not, we talked about this, it's not the baptism we experience, right? It's not the us dying to our sins and coming up alive with Christ. It's not that. It's this idea that you've got to be purified because the kingdom of heaven is near. That's why John the Baptist was baptizing. Um, you look at the, the miracle of turning the water into wine, that Jesus used these six stone pots that were, that were used in the purification process. And in the Old Testament, um, water played a huge part in being purified. And so Jesus, remember, he came to fulfill the Old Testament. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. And so he's, he's trying to get Nicodemus to think on the same lines that, hey, you have been studying this your whole life, and you're still missing the point that he's not talking about this outward physical purification, but he's talking about an inward purification, an inward washing that needs to be happening. If you read Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, and remember, as we read the Old Testament, keep Christ in mind. And so we read Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. It says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. 
and I will give you a new, a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. You could almost throw that verse in like a letter of Paul or like something that Jesus said. That's like, if you read that with Jesus in mind, you're like, oh, that's salvation, right? You read that, that's like, oh, okay. And so Jesus is, is throwing these references out and saying, hey, it's, it's, it's not about this outward purification that needs to happen, um, but it is the, the purification that only God can bring. It, it, you, you are focusing so much on the ceremony and the law that you're missing what the law is pointing to. And so he's, he says, you've got, to be, you've got to be purified. And that purification can only come from God. We've talked about it several times, and I'm going to hit it again because in that verse in Ezekiel, God's saying, I will sprinkle you. I will put a new spirit in you. I will break up your stony heart. I will put my spirit. Like, God's like, hey, hey, it's not you, but it's me doing the work in you. And he's talking about um, this idea that, that Nicodemus should have been familiar with, this purification. And, and Paul reinforces this in his letter to Titus in Titus 3, 4, and 5, where he says, but when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. That God is the one washing us. God is the one purifying us. God is the one doing the work. And so Jesus is trying to explain this to this guy who should have got it. And in verse 7, he's like, you get it now. Like, why are you so surprised when I say you've got to be born again? Why? And, and he's, he's, he kind of makes this comparison. You see the wind, you see the effects of the wind. You can't explain where it's going or where it came from. And the, whole, and the Spirit's like that. That, that the, the effects of the Spirit should be evident in your life. You can't explain it right? That it's beyond this, this human comprehension, but we know that God is the one doing the work. And in, in that process, we see the evidence of the work that God has done, that there is a new heart, there's a new spirit, there's a new desire, and that is all because of what God has done. And so then we get to uh, John chapter 3, verse 9. Nicodemus again, how are these things possible? I'm like, all right, come on, Nicodemus. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life." Uh, let me stop just totally. If, if, you, if this is your first time here on a Wednesday night, uh, it's totally different than what we do on a Sunday morning. So there's no worship. There's nothing like that. It's just like prayer in this. And so uh, I sorry, I'm sorry if you got like bait and switched into this, but um, glad you're here. I hope you get something out of it. Anyway, carrying on. But we read this, and so Nicodemus is still like, I don't get it. And, and this was the problem with the Pharisees, is that they thought they were good because of what they did, right? They, they, they missed the connection of having this knowledge and connecting it with the heart. They, they missed the connection of what God was really trying to do. And, and they thought like their knowledge of the scriptures is what would save them. And Jesus isn't giving some mystery religion. He's not 
trying to explain the omega code. Well, if you take the 18th letter out of every odd page and you do this and then you multiply it by that, like this isn't a, this isn't a, a, a difficult concept that any, any leader, any Jewish teacher worth his salt knew that the Old Testament was pointing towards a Messiah. They just didn't make the connection that it was Jesus. Um, and, and so what the problem was with the Pharisees was what we would call the self-righteousness. That, that they thought they were good because of what they did, right? I know more than you, so I'm better than you. I act in accordance with the law, so I'm better with you. And they miss the fact that it's, it's, it's look what I've done, not look what God has done in me. It's, it's hey, look what I know, not like, not like who I know, right? They, they, you read in, in Matthew where Jesus is saying, you know, depart from me, I never knew you. And I've said it before that it's really cool to think we know Jesus, but does Jesus know us? And that's kind of what they were missing was the fact that, hey, I know God. And then Jesus is like, you don't know me. You're missing like the big picture. And it's, it's, it's very much of a, uh, an eye-opening warning for, for followers of Christ, for people who are supposedly uh, supposed to teach the word of God, that, you know, I, can get, I could get so wrapped up with these thoughts and ideas and concepts that I miss, that, that it almost like, deadens me to the need for a heart change. And so it's, it's a warning to us as we are becoming more and more like Christ, that it's not about what we do, but it's all about what he's done for us, and undeservedly so. Um, and so we've got to understand that it is born again. It's not learning more. That's part of it, but we can't hang our hats on, oh, psh, I can quote the entire New Testament. That's great. What's your heart look like? Like, what, what's, what's going on? Um, Jesus says, you see the effects of the wind. Can we see the effects of God's working in your life? That's, go back to what Jesus said, you can identify a tree by its fruit. Like, what are you looking like? And so, um, and so Jesus is, is trying to explain this to him, right? If you're in charge of teaching the, the nation and you don't get it, man, this is, we're in trouble here. And so Jesus goes on to talk about this authority that he has when it comes to talking about heavenly things. He says, I have the authority because no man's ever gone up to heaven and, and can explain what I've seen. He said, but I, the son of man, have come down from heaven. And this, this title, son of man, is one of Jesus' favorite uh, titles for himself. And, and so I'm going to talk about it just for a little bit. Um, and it's uh, too late because I was going to ask you a question. It's okay. Um, no, no, you're fine. <laughs> but one of the reasons, um, there's a few reasons, and there's some kind of superficial reasons, and then we're going to get into a little bit deeper reason why he may have used this title. On the surface, um, son of man is kind of an unassuming title. I'm a son of a man, aren't you, right? That's, that's not that big of a deal. We read in the Bible that he's fully God and fully human, so maybe you're like, ah, oh, he's leaning into his humanity a little bit, not taking anything away from his deity, but he's just trying to maybe, you know, if he's like, I'm the son of God, be like, you're crazy. But if he's like, hey, you know, I'm the son of a man, you're like, okay, it's a weird way to phrase it, but sure, whatever. And so on the surface, it's kind of unassuming. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says things like, anyone who has ears, let him hear. And, and what he means in that is, is anyone whose hearts have been opened by God um, to seek after God, those of you that are spiritually alive, Pay attention to this, um, because we see that people are, are spiritually blind, spiritually deaf. They don't understand the things of God. 
Jesus talks about this in Matthew 13, of the reason why he talks in parables is that his followers and his, his disciples understand and that those who, who aren't following him, they don't get it, they don't grasp the significance of what's going on. And, and so Jesus talks in such a way that those whose hearts are open understand what's going on. Um, they hear they're transformed. Uh, but the spiritually deaf, they don't have ears to hear, if you will, through use some language um, that Jesus used. And if you notice, there's only one time where he, he like publicly professes that he's the Messiah, and it's right before he's about to be crucified at the appointed time, where they're like, you claim to be the son of God, you know, are you? And he goes, I am. Um, he does it individually a couple times. You see the lady at the well, at the well, at the well and he says, the, the guy, the Messiah you're talking about, I'm he, that's, that's me. He does it on individual basis, but when it comes to a public expression that he is the Messiah, he only does it like really one time, and it's before his appointed time to be crucified. And so he's really walking kind of this narrow line of, of being kind of vague to those that don't know him, but being very explicit in who he is to those that do know him. Because to the spiritually deaf, hearing the term son of man is not that big of a deal, but hearing the son of man to those that know him is this very bold claim to his authority and his deity. If you read in Daniel 7, um, you see this. And, and again, if we read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind, you read this and you're like, oh, Yep, that sounds like something out of Revelation. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like the Son of Man, interesting term, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One and was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations in the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. He who has ears, let him hear. I'm the son of man. Oh, oh, spiritually deaf. All right, whatever. They weren't concerned if he was the son of man. They were like, are you the son of God? Right, and, and so I'm the son of man. And if you can't connect the dots, then you're spiritually deaf and you're missing the boat. And then he goes into this, this really interesting story that's found in Numbers 21 um, where, where Moses is lifting up this bronze snake. And if you don't know it, we'll read it right here, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. It says, Then the people of Israel set out um, from Mount Or, taking their road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak to God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they were bitten and died. And the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away these snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord told them, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of, a bronze, or out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now, if you read this story, this isn't God's judgment against the Egyptians. It's not God's judgment against the Canaanites. It's God's judgment against his people because they were bitter and they were angry and they kept forgetting what God had done. Oh, you brought us out of Egypt in a miraculous way. You fed us in a miraculous way. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt? He's like, all right. And so he unleashes these snakes whose, whose venom is deadly, whose bite 
is excruciating, and these people, but here's what the, the judgment had its intended consequence, which was bringing the people to repentance. They repented, they're like, we're sorry, do something. And so Moses prayed, God said, all right, take that snake, make a replica of it, put it on a pole, lift it up, and all people have to do is look at it, and they're going to be healed. But what's implied in this is that people didn't look at it. People died. People were bitten. They were like rolling around in agony. And and if, if I was dying, it would be pretty simple for me to do this. Like if all I had to do was turn my head and look at, at a snake. But people, even in like the, the on death's doorstep, they still refused to trust the means of salvation that God provided. And so Jesus is making this reference. And again, read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind. I'm probably going to mention that a few more times tonight. And you read this story. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see the parallels of the snake, right? That Jesus had to take the sting of death. That he had the the, the poison of sin that, that was upon him. Um, he had to be lifted up on the cross. And whoever believes, whoever looks to him, won't die, but will have eternal life. And so that brings us to the last section, verses 16 through 21. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God has sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people love darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So we're going to take a minute and talk about John 3.16 because it's one of the most popular, if not the most popular verses in the New Testament of the Bible, people who have nothing to do with God can probably quote it. Um, it's held up in, or used to be like held up in sporting events and all kinds of things. Um, there's three basic parts, kind of three breakdowns for God so loved the world. He gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we're going to break it down a little bit. You'll hear people preaching and evangelizing, um, talking out of this verse, right? You just got to believe in Jesus to be saved. We've already discussed that. That's true, right? Those that believe are saved, those, but it's apart from anything we do. Um, so all, all is well and good so far. But um, this verse has been maybe misunderstood. There's been some emphasis put on words that aren't really in the original text. And so we're going to talk about it a little bit more in detail and just kind of give us maybe a, a better and hopefully a richer meaning of what this word or what this passage looks like. And we're going to kind of key in on a few words in each one of these, um, each one of these points. And so Jesus starts out by he says, you know, for God so loved. So he's, word four, he's just expanding upon what he's already been talking about. He's been talking about born again, been talking about the son of man being lifted up. So he's expanding upon this idea that he's already established with Nicodemus. Um, for God so loved the world that he gave, right? And so in this first part, how many of you guys have ever heard the, the, the verse, break, God loves you so much that he gave his only son? And the emphasis is on this so, right? If I tell you that I love my wife so much, I am emphasizing the love that I have for my wife. That's not really what's in the text. Um, it's not emphasizing 
the, the greatness of God's love. Now, I'm not gonna, this isn't a hill that I'm going to die on. I'm not going to downplay God's love for his people. Um, but we've got to understand what's, what's going on here. And so the word so, um, it means that in this manner. So God loved the world in this manner. And so um, I, I think the next slide we have a, don't put it up there right now, Sammy. Um, we have a kind of, we're gonna have like a, a not so cute and packaged way that this verse kind of plays out. But it's saying God loved the world in this manner. Not God loved you so much, right? That's not what it's saying. It said God loved the world. He loved the world in a manner that, that what? Um, and when we look at the world, um, you can, people take this to mean everybody, um, he loved, God loved the world. God loved those that were alienated from him. Um, and so the first part you could read it as this is, uh, for this reason, uh, God loved the fallen world of humanity in such a manner. And then we get to the second part. Um, you get to this next part. And, and one of the key words that I want us to look at is the word that. Because there's two that's in this phrase, and they're different words. Um, and so you read the word that. And so John only uses this variation of that one time in all five of his Gospels. Um, and so it means that it, there is a, a practical result. There is something that is produced. So um, God loved the fallen world of humanity in such a manner that it produced something. Um, it, it, and what is that? What was the, the, the effect of that love is that he gave his only son. Um, the monogenes that we talked about in chapter one, the unique one, the only one of its kind. And, and the effect of God's love is that he gave. And that's a way that you're able to distinguish. You know, I love, um, I can say I love you guys, but if I'm not willing to give up my time, if I'm not willing to give up something, then my words are kind of empty. I don't really love you. I kind of like you, but I'm not willing to go out of my way to do anything. And so God loved in such a manner that it produced a result. And that result was him sending Christ to the earth. And so then we get to the last point. And the last verse comes into play, and, and we see that word, that, again. Different word from the first time, um, but it means with a purpose. So, um, for this reason, God loved the fallen world of humanity in such a manner that the result was he gave his only begotten son with a purpose that whoever, if you guys throw a party at your house, and you're talking to your friends, and you're like, who's coming over? I don't know, whoever. When you say whoever, do you mean like the homeless guy at 71st? No, you mean like any of my friends. You mean that, like, hey, yeah, let's invite, you know, the serial killer down the street. You don't mean whoever, do you? You mean, like, your friends in your friend group. And so this doesn't mean just eh, whoever. The actual Greek is pospistuo, and it means for each believing one. And so it's, it's very, like, that Christ came so that each believing one would be saved. And we've read this all through John already, that those who, what, believe, this is, this is the big uh, picture of John's gospel, John 20, 31, that you would believe so that you would have life by the power of his name. And so John's saying this, and so in a, in a very um, much more wordy, uh, not as packaged, but probably more accurate to what the Greek is actually saying, for this reason, God loved the fallen world of humanity in such a manner that the result was he gave his only begotten son for the purpose that each believing one should not be destroyed, but be rescued. And like I said, the way that it's been preached, I'm not, I don't want to like, it's not necessarily a hill. I'm gonna, it's not, when people start saying it's a universal salvation, okay, then we'll, then we'll start talking. But there needs to be some understanding 
Um, I mentioned it in week one, that there's a difference between eisegesis and exegesis, and eisegesis is us reading what we want to read in the text, and exegesis is, is, is us reading what God has intended the text to say. And so just, I've, why did I spend so much time there is because it's such a, a popular verse. Um, does it change the fact that Jesus came to the earth and, and died so that we could have life? No. But the emphasis isn't on, like, God loved you so much that he spread his arms. Like, that's not, like, it's, it's that he loved us, and that love produced a result. And that it wasn't just for eh, whoever, you know, whoever wants, but it's for those, each person that believes that they are rescued and they're saved. And so finishing up with the last few verses, um, Jesus is being crystal clear, right? Just as, as Moses lifted up the snake um, and bit people that were screaming out in pain, right? All they had to do was look. Jesus is saying, hey, people just need to look to me as I am lifted up and they understand who I am. That those living in darkness must believe in him and they'll be saved. And remember, it's not just this knowledge. You know, we, we read at the end of John chapter 2, that people trusted him, but he didn't trust them, right? They trusted because of what they had seen, but it wasn't this wholehearted commitment. And so Jesus is saying, hey, those who are wholeheartedly committed to laying down their life and following me, those are the ones that are going to be saved. But, but then you get the flip side. You get the word that a lot of us like. It's like you get bad news, and it's like, but. But on this, it's like you get the good news, and he's like, but, right? But if you don't believe, you're already condemned. John three seventeen. Um, God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Um, the reason he didn't come to condemn us is because we were already condemned, right? We, that's, we, that's how we were born, is in judgment, we're condemned, like all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so he didn't need to condemn us, he already did. But I will say this, his first appearance on earth, he appeared as savior. When he comes again, he will come as judge. And so, so there, is, there is that balance there. People will be like, well, you know, you can't judge me. Jesus didn't judge me. First of all, it says Jesus didn't condemn. I mean, but I guess details don't really matter to some people. But, um, but I could look at your life and, and see the fruit of your life. And I could make some observations of where you might be in your faith based on uh, looking at your life. But, uh, but he didn't come to condemn us because we're already condemned. And, and these last couple of verses parallel the, the, uh, John 1, 9 through 13 quite a bit. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people and they rejected him. But all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. You've seen the parallel here that John wrote in John chapter 1 to what Jesus is saying in John 3, right? That, that people, that Jesus comes in and people reject the lights or they walk into light. And if people reject the lights because they enjoy their sin more than they want their sin to be exposed. Why? Because that is painful. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing to have our sin exposed. But the only way we can be healed and be made whole and, and be reborn is by believing in Jesus. And so, What's, what's the alternative? Is it looking at the snake or is it living in your pain that's going to result in death? And that's in a nutshell what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, right? That the good news is that those snake-bitten people have hope if they look to me. Um, and he, he uses the Old Testament references to try to, like Ezekiel said, break apart the stony, stubborn heart that these Pharisees in this world has. So 
Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight and we thank thankful for your word. God, thankful um, that you have spoken to us through your word. And I, I pray that we would walk out of here just with a deeper understanding of you, um, who you are. God, we thank you um, for all that you've done for us. So unworthy, but so grateful. Um, God, help us. Help us walk in accordance uh, with your will and your way. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, hey, it's 735. Uh, we have our Friends Day this Sunday. We would love to see you guys there. Uh, we'd love to see you guys next, back here next week for midweek. Do you guys have any questions about anything that I talked about? Anything? Tisha, what's up? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, no, there is, like I said uh, earlier when I was praying for the group prayers, right, that um, there is uh, everything that we need in Jesus. And um, I go back and reference, you know, I, I think of, of my own life and what we're dealing with with our son with epilepsy, and it's just this day-to-day struggle. And every day we pray that he is healed and that he's made whole. Um, but at the end of, of every prayer, I'm like, God, I know that you can. There is no doubt in my mind that God can absolutely heal him, and I'm praying that he will. But even if he doesn't, I know that God is still good, right? There is, he absolutely holds that power. And so at the end of my prayers, you know, I, I say, um, not my will, but your will be done. And, and with that, uh, it's a difficult prayer because we want, I want what I want. And, uh, uh, but at the ultimate, when it, ultimately, when it comes to us following Christ, um, you know, Romans 8 talks about the Holy Spirit praying for us and interceding on us, and it, and it causes us, um, the Holy Spirit causes us to come in line with the will of God. And so praying that prayer, your will be done, is saying, you know, God, whatever you may be, um, whatever you have planned for me, um, I, am go- I am going to trust you, and I'm going to know that you're good, and I know that you can, but yes, absolutely, there is, there is healing in Jesus, absolutely believe that 100%. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm going to say your will be done. And if it's your will that my son's healed, all glory to you. All right. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for being here. Um, see you Sunday and hope to see you guys back next Wednesday. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv. Thank you.